Good afternoon to uh, everybody. Um, very hot afternoon. So, thank you for coming on such a such a hot afternoon. So, this afternoon we'll be uh, doing a sutta, discussing a sutta from uh, the Majjhima If you've got your copies, it's Sutta 148, and it's uh, in Pali, quite hard. Chachaka Sutta, the set of the six sets of six. Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambundasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambundasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambundasa Right. I'd just like to start the discussion, uh, to start the reading first, make a few comments uh, about this. The sutta is about the six sense bases, which I've discussed recently actually. (laughs) But uh, I just wanted to say the reason, one of the reasons that I particularly like. Buddha's presentation of the six sense bases is because it was one of the first teachings I experienced when I came to the Buddhist Society uh, in December 1983 and uh, the Buddhist Society wasn't here then, it wasn't in this location this particular site, it was in a little house in Magnolia Street in North Perth and uh, many of you may know or some of you may know Ajahn Jagro was the uh, main teacher at that time and I remember coming to this small house and usually arriving late and uh, sitting in the passageway because there was no room in the main, uh, the main uh, room for the teaching. So I couldn't see the monk, but I could hear the talk. And the first talk I heard was about the, uh, as I say, about the six sense spaces. And uh, the f- one thing that really captured my attention on that occasion was when uh, Ajahn Jagra would say, each of us is the centre of our own universe. And that really hit me, uh, hit home for me, because, of course, we all um, realise, in a sense, that what we take to be the world, the way we see the world, is very much our own um, interpretation. You get two people together and get them to describe the same event or maybe the same object, and you'll get two uh, quite different interpretations of what has happened so that really, that was really an interesting thing for me. And of course what that points to for all of us is that our experience of the world, the world out there, is not so much what is out there, what science uh, uh, points to, what um, uh, materialism points to, it's the world that's inside us that is uh, the important area. And it also means because our take on... Um, our experience of the world, the universe, is very subjective. It means that we can also work in that area. That's where we can actually change the world, as it were, from inside. So I'd just like to mention that one, uh, just mention that. And um, also to read, before we start the sutta reading, another small uh, um, sutta by the Buddha, where he talks about the importance of the six sense bases. If people are wondering what the six sense bases are, you'll soon get an idea. It's the five physical senses and also the mind. And I'm just reading here from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this one's called The All. 
And uh, the Buddha said, this is that salvati. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the all. That's A-double-L. <laughs> Listen to that. And what bhikkhus is the all? The eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odours, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the all. If anyone, bhikkhus, should speak thus, having rejected this all, I shall make known another all. That would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned, he would not be able to reply, and further he would meet with vexation. For what reason? Because, because that would not be within his domain. So what the Buddha is pointing to here is the fact that really, when you come down to it, the whole complexity of our experience, you know, which seems like an amazing array of uh, experiences, comes down to these six senses and their, their, their objects, as it were, which is really makes life incredibly simple in a way, because I don't know about you, when I first heard this teaching from Ajahn Jagra, I thought, is that all it is? You know, it comes down to these five senses and the mind. But when you look at it, when you're looking at the process rather than the content, the experiences, the actual individual experiences, when you're looking at the process, that's what it is. We are hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing, and also thinking. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a very radical way of looking at our lives, and typical of the Buddha, that he could simplify it. And the importance of actually contemplating the six sense bases is that it is one of the big areas for insight. Um, the six sense bases and also the um, five aggregates, that's another one that people are probably familiar with, the body, consciousness, feeling, perceptions and volitional formations. Those two areas are particularly uh, um, particular focuses for insight, as is satipatthana and as is dependent origination. They're very big um, areas for insight. Where to look once the mind is powerful, is empowered by um, serenity, by peace, by samadhi, by um, being focused. So, and one of the other things, one of the other nice stories I liked from Ajahn Jangra, I don't remember it from those days actually, I read it in his uh, book that he wrote a few years ago, and he actually said to, he was in Thailand, and he was a, this was when he was a young monk, and he, he was sent by his teacher, Ajahn Chah, to a branch monastery. And there was no teacher at this monastery. And so the next time he came back to see Ajahn Chah, he, he complained you know, rather bitterly that there's no teacher. You know, how am I expected to grow in the Dhamma, grow in wisdom? And Ajahn Chah said to him, yes, yes, you've got teacher there. There's a, you've got six teachers there, in fact. He said, you've got, the, uh, you've got sight, smells, tastes, touches, and the mind the thoughts and he said all you need is to be a good student to learn from it probably the, uh, the, uh, the, the thing there is the, the emphasis there is being a good student and uh, to be a good student we have to have that peaceful mind powerful mind be sensitive to what we're experiencing it's interesting in a way when you think that the six senses are what can take us to enlightenment we're sitting here now with the six senses this experience here can be, uh, you know, for instance, could be enough for somebody to see into and become enlightened, fully, un uh, fully enlightened. So let's hope this happens today. <laughs>
So I'll start reading uh, this sutta and what I'll do is, uh, actually I'll stop now too, is periodically stop and just ask if there's any questions or any comments. If you've got any comments, please feel free to add them because it adds quite a lot to the, uh, the discussion, I think. So if anybody's got any questions or comments yet? That's 148, that's correct, so on page 1129. Yep. Righto. <clears throat> thus, have I, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Salvati in Jetta's Grove, Martha Pindika's park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, I shall teach you the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end. With the right meaning and phrasing, I shall reveal a holy life that is utterly perfect and pure. That is, the set, six sets of six. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, uh, the interesting thing to notice there, and Bhikkhu Bodhi makes a note in the back, is the, because the Buddha is using all these descriptions of the Dhamma, where he's describing it as good in the beginning, good uh, in the middle, and good in the end, and so on, is, uh, he says, and I think it's quite right, that um, it's em- to emphasise the importance of this sutta, that is actually quite a um, uh, central uh, sutta, and uh, when you get to the end of it, you'll find out the results of it, which is pretty amazing, I think, anyway. <laughs> so the Buddha now gives a synopsis of the... Uh, anybody got any comments about that? Or No? The Buddha now gives a synopsis, which I think is really remarkable, that he is so uh, teaches so clearly, so well, that he'll give you the synopsis and then go into the details and do it in a very methodical way, as you'll see. Um, so it's very clear to people what he's talking about in the synopsis the six internal bases should be understood the six external bases should be understood the six classes of consciousness should be understood the six classes of contact should be understood the six classes of feeling should be understood the six classes of craving should be understood I think uh, the first thing that stands out for me, maybe for many of you, is the emphasis on understood. Uh, When you read, when the Buddha says that over and over again, it really reminds you straight away of, uh, well, does does it remind anybody of anything that the Buddha said? Yep. Exactly. It's the first noble truth. Yeah. So this is what he's pointing to. That's, that's spot on, actually. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what he's to, po- pointing to. Uh, the Buddha often said that the, um, uh, the first noble truth was the five khandhas, or the five aggregates, but obviously here he's saying, too, that it's equivalent to the six sense bases as well, that they are to be understood as suffering, or in many ways some people have a problem with suffering, but as more sometimes unsatisfactoriness is quite a good uh, translation too because he's pointing at the fact that they can never truly satisfy especially things from the uh, outside 
they can give some pleasure, obviously, but they cannot be really, truly satisfying. So, and now we have the enumeration, as they call it. Um, the six sense bases should be understood. So it was said. And with reference to what was, what was this said? There are the eye base, the ear base, the nose base, the tongue base, the body base and the mind base. So it was with reference to this that it was said the six internal bases should be understood. This is the first set of six. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It's almost scientific in its sort of bareness and uh, just sort of uh, specificity, you know, the fact that it's really specifying things. I mean, when you say ear base, um, eye base, uh, nose base and so on, it sounds a little bit remote from our experience. But of course, what the Buddha is talking about is the, uh, the organs of sense, you know, the eye uh, and all the, all the things that support the functioning of the eye as well. Um, the nose, the uh, tongue, um, the body and the mind. And another interesting thing, which probably some of you may have contemplated, I have. <laughs> why does he call them bases? Why are they called the six sense? Why are they called the six bases? Actually, he doesn't actually use the word senses. And uh, one idea I have, anyway, is that they are bases for consciousness. They're bases for our experience of the world, uh, internal and external. So that's what I think the Buddha is using the word base for. He also uses the word base when he's talking about the, um, sometimes we call it the base, sometimes we call it the sphere of infinite consciousness, infinite space, uh, the sphere of or base of nothingness and the base, base of neither perception uh, nor, nor perception, perception or non-perception. Can everybody hear? You're okay? Yeah. Is that loud enough? I'll try and get that. There we are. That's good. So that's my uh, understanding of base. Has anybody else got a, any ideas of why uh, the Buddha would call it a base? The ear base, the nose base and so on. Sorry? Base of ignorance. Yeah, that's quite possible actually. Uh, base of ignorance. In other words, uh, a place where Ignorance in the sense that we misinterpret what they're about. For instance, that we don't see that uh, they're unsatisfactory or suffering. We don't see that, for instance, they're impermanent, they come and they go. And we don't see that they're not actually something coming from ourselves, from a sense of ourself. They're actually a process that's happening quite naturally uh, without a, a self having to be involved. So that's, that's, that's quite a possibility, actually. That's good. Yes, Bronwyn. I, th I think I'm hearing you. I think that's fairly similar to, yeah, as a basis for consciousness of what we're experiencing outside. Yeah, very much so. Because if we did not have our sense organs, no way could we experience the outside world. Mind base. Yeah. 
Exactly, yeah. You get to that. The, the mind base is actually what makes all the other sense bases work. If we didn't have the mind, of course, there would be nothing to receive all that um, uh, data and, in, and nothing to interpret it, not to be able to develop a feeling about it, develop a perception about it, um, and then develop uh, intentions about it. So we'll move on now. The six, so that's the six internal bases. So they're internal in the sense that they're in the body. This is quite interesting, and I'll point out something here too. The six external bases should be understood. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said, there are the form base, the sound base, the odour base, the flavour base, the tangible base, and the mind object base. So it was with reference to this that it was said the six external bases should be understood. This is the second set of six. That's quite interesting because it's easy enough with the five senses to see that um, uh, sights, uh, sounds, smells, tastes and touches are what are the external bases as it were or the external things that we're relating to. That's easy enough. But the one that I find quite interesting is the Buddha says that the mind object base, so anything that occurs in the mind, experiences within the mind, um, states of mind, is describing them as external. And I, I found that really uh, curious actually, why, why he would uh, describe it as an external thing. Because most of us would say, yeah, sight, sound, smells, tastes and touches, they're out there, they're, in, they're not inside the body as it were. They're out there, we can see them, we can hear and smell and taste and touch. But mind objects, they're inside the body, they're in, they're in the mind. Well, that's what one would naturally think. Does anybody uh, got any ideas on that one? Or? One idea I had was that um, it might be the sense that mind objects are not actually intrinsically part of the mind and in one sense are outside of the mind. Because sometimes you hear the Buddha talk about the, the nature of the mind being pure and radiant and that it's defiled by things that come from outside, you know, like the um, five hindrances. So it may be what the Buddha is pointing to is that these things, these objects that arise, are not actually intrinsically part of the mind. They are, as it were, outside of the mind. Definitely not outside of the body, I suppose, but outside of the mind. So... Righto, so we've got internal and external and now the six classes of consciousness. Any comments so far about that? No. The six classes of consciousness should be understood, so it was said, and with reference to what was, it, was this said. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. Dependent on the ear and sounds, ear consciousness arises. Dependent on the nose and odours, nose consciousness arises. Dependent on the tongue and flavours, tongue consciousness arises. Dependent on the body and tangible, tangibles, body consciousness arises. Dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. So it was with reference to this that it was said, the six classes of consciousness should be understood. This is the set, third set of, of six. So this is pointing at the aspect of the mind which makes it uh, impossible for us to experience things through our eyes, 
our ears, our nose, tongue and body. If there was not a, a consciousness that related to the, um, to the functioning of those organs, we would not be able to experience anything from the outside. And this is a very interesting part of it because it's the link between the outside world and the world inside. It's also where we're, as it were, um, starting to, be, to have our own take on the reality, on the, our external experience. Yes, Bronwyn. Two. Dependent origination. Uh, Bronwyn's just asking if it's starting to refer to dependent origination. It, this, actually, the sixth sense basis fits into dependent origination very, very well. Um, this is probably a little bit different from dependent origination because in that often they talk about consciousness and definitely consciousness is always said to be the six classes of consciousness. But in dependent origination, I don't know if people know that, that's the 12 links the Buddha described as the process that uh, sustains samsara, that sustains the world we live in, gives rise to rebirth. And uh, in that... He's usually talking about consciousness as, um, or it's usually interpreted as being that consciousness that arises um, for rebirth, as it were, the next life coming up. But it can also mean uh, the six classes of consciousness as well, you know. So, thanks for that, that's good. Yeah. But as we go on, you'll see more of dependent origination coming into it. And uh, one of the basic functions of dependent origination, as you'll see in here, is really to explain how, we, how life goes on without a self. Because many people will say, well, you know, what's running the show, as it were? Who's running the show? And the Buddha is saying, well, that's not quite the right question. It's just what's running the show, you know, how this process is unfolding, and it's a natural process. And... Uh, Part of the reason that he says it must be understood is that we're misunderstanding the process. We see these things and we say, well, that's me, isn't it? I'm seeing, I'm <laughs> smelling, tasting, touching. So uh, this is part of what dependent origination is talking about and he's talking about in here as well. Right. So we've had the six, uh, the six classes of consciousness. Now the six classes of contact should be understood. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Dependent on the ear and sounds, ear consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Depending on the nose and odours, nose consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Dependent on the tongue and flavours, tongue consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Dependent on the body and tangibles, body consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. So it was with reference to this that it was said, the six classes of contact should be understood. This is the fourth set of six. That is actually... Is contact you know, like coming into contact with, with, with uh, say, uh, a smell, a taste, a touch. Contact, yeah, contact. Um, yeah, it's just a simple meeting of the three. You know, it's the actual uh, experience of it, as it were. You actually have a smell, a taste, a sight, or whatever. But the, uh, it's quite interesting with this, uh, this, because it's pointing at the fact that you do need, first of all, you need to have the uh, sense organ, 
it's got to be working. If you're blind, of course, you're not going to see sights, um, external sights anyway. And if you're deficient in any other uh, sense organs, you will not experience uh, the world through those. And the other thing, there has to be some object for that sense organ to engage with. But really, the most important thing, uh, one of the most important things is that this consciousness has got to be there too. So in other words, and you can, many people experience this, you can, um, for instance, if, if there's, some, there's a sight in front of you, you know, your eyes are functioning, uh, there's some object in front of you, you should be able to see it. But if, for instance, your consciousness, if your mind's distracted, if you're talking to somebody or you're um, listening to something else, you may not even see something right in front of you at all. So this is a very important uh, point that uh, contact doesn't always happen unless those three things, the organ of uh, sense, uh, the sense organ is operating, there's a form there and consciousness is actually switched on to... Uh, to actually experience it. A very good example is the one Ajahn Brahm always tells, which is the people who are watching, <laughs> watching television or a video and burglars broke into their house and stole quite a lot of their things from their house and they were completely oblivious, you know. And how many of us have been reading a book, somebody's talking to us, but we have no idea what they're saying. So it's a very, it's quite an important point. And... Um, it also means, it also points to the fact we can actually, as it were, turn away too from some, um, some sense contacts. You know, we don't have to be conscious of them. We can, as it were, um, uh, focus on something else. And at times that can be a very skillful thing to do. So any questions about sense consciousness? It's very, it sounds very dry when you read it like this in a way. But if you can really take it to heart, it's actually pointing to something really profound and uh, quite, it's quite amazing actually because we just take our sense experience so much for granted and we don't really look at what's going on. You know, we don't even question it. And yet this is really where there's a lot of insight to be developed. Also a lot of freedom too. We can, can change the way we relate to the world. We can also understand the way we relate to the world because sometimes it can be... Um, you know, such an automatic process that we want to, and we're not very happy with that necessarily, the way we respond to some, uh, some uh, sight, smells, uh, taste, touches and whatever, particularly sounds. Sometimes conversations can be really disturbing. We can get very upset with what somebody says. And by understanding the six sense bases can actually reduce some of that suffering, even if we don't attain full enlightenment straight away. <laughs> Right, oh, so that's contact. Um, and again, as Bronwyn mentioned, you can see the beginning of, of dependent origination because in dependent origination, the Buddha said you have consciousness and if you're, if you're born, you have consciousness and you have the other mental uh, qualities of perception, feeling, uh, volitional formations, that's like will, um, and you also have a body. And when you have a body, then you have the six sense organs when you have the six sense organs, then you have contact. You're in, you're up, up and running. <laughs> and now the Buddha talks about the next stage of dependent origination. When you have sense contacts, then you're going to have feelings. Yeah, yeah. Where, Lynn's asking, where does imagination come in the five khandhas? I would, I, I would say it comes in the volitional formations. Um, 
uh, kando aggregate because that's got quite a collection of different uh, states of consciousness. So imagination, I would, be ima- would, would, would imagine, is in there. Is the imagination the doer? Yeah. Yes, I, I suppose you could say that, actually. Yeah, you could, because it, uh, it's a very active thing. Yeah, and because, you know, another, um, you, know, you probably know Ajahn Tanisaro's translation of uh, Sankara, volitional formations. It's one of the aspects the Buddha talked about, is, as Ajahn Ram calls that the doer, you know, the Sankaras. But Ajahn Tanisaro calls it the fabricator, fabrications. And in a sense, that gives it a, a, a quite a good meaning, actually. It's that aspect of mind that m- puts things together, makes, uh, makes up our experience. And if anything, imagination is definitely like fabrication. I mean, it can be positive or negative. It doesn't have to be negative. So, yeah, no, that's a very good. Right. So now we have the six classes of feeling should be understood. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said, Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. Dependent on the ear and sounds, ear consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. Dependent on the nose and odours, nose consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. Dependent on the tongue and flavours, Tongue consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. Dependent on the body and tangibles, body consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. Dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. So it was with reference to this that it was said, The six classes of feeling should be understood. This is the fifth set of six. So the Buddha is is really outlining really clearly, I mean he's hammering it actually, the whole process that's going on here. It's just really, you know, just is making absolutely clear what we're having here is is a process that's unfolding and it's a causal process. You get one condition, the next condition arises and that flows on to the to the next condition. Uh, no, no, that's because you've, um, you've got the five senses, uh, which includes the, includes the uh, body sense of touch, and then you've got and then you've got mind as number six. Yeah, that's touch. Yeah, they they use this word tangibles, which is a bit, you know, half of the half of the thing of reading a sutta actually is actually to be able to relate it to your own experience too, you know, to to see it in your own terms, because then it becomes really. Um, has a real impact, you know, if you can bring it home, as it were. Yeah. And uh, this is, it's interesting too, when the Buddha talks about, he's talking about feeling, uh, this, uh, the different feelings arising, he describes it a bit later in the sutta, he goes into a bit more detail, but that is, feeling is either pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's not actually, in English we, we use feeling as more like an emotional reaction. You know, we, we are angry, we say we're feeling, or we are joyful, we're feeling. But in Buddhism there's not this sort of feeling. This sort of feeling is like the basic tone that comes with every experience. 
And it's, it's sort of a very simple, almost, it's not quite binary because there's three of them, but a very simple pleasant, positive, negative in between. And uh, it's, it's, it's part of a, almost, um, this process almost happens uh, so quickly that we're not necessarily aware of it. But the feelings that, uh, that arise, you'll get into this more, is where we start to react to the world and uh, where we start to, um, to attach to various parts of the world or become averse to various parts of the world. Obviously, nobody likes unpleasant feelings and like heat <laughs> and uh, people like pleasant feelings so they'll be attra- attracted to those. The other thing that's important to point out here is that when, when the Buddha is describing this causal sequence, it's, it, it can come, uh, be quite a strong thing actually. You realise this is an automatic process that being a human being with these six senses, if they're all functioning, you're going to have contact. You can't avoid it. I mean, you can close your eyes for some time you're still going to have uh, sound, smells, taste, touches and whatever. And this is part of being a human being. You can't turn them off. The only way you can actually, as it were, turn them off is go into deep meditation and then you've turned off five senses and you've got one sense, the mind sense. But this is part of, uh, uh, the Buddha said, really part of suffering is the fact that we have no, no control over that. What we're going to experience through contacts pleasant contacts, unpleasant contacts and neutral contacts and we haven't got a whole lot of control over that. The only control we have in a sense is uh, our attitude to them, you know, our approach to them. We can make a lot of suffering out of it or we can, as it were, let them be and come from a place of wisdom that realises, hey, sometimes it will be unpleasant, contacts will be arising, people are going to say things to me I just don't want to know about. I'm going to see sights that I definitely don't want to see and uh, smells, tastes and touches. So that's coming from a place of wisdom which is what the Buddha is uh, pointing to. Um, And if we understand this process we've got a chance of reacting differently, which is good. So we have the six six types of feeling, classes of feeling. And now, this is very interesting, the Buddha says the six classes of craving should be understood. So it was said, and with reference to what was, and with reference to what was this said, dependent on the iron forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. With feeling as condition, there is craving. Dependent on the ear and sounds, eye, ear consciousness arises. And then the text is abbreviated, so I'll read the, just go through the abbreviations actually. With feeling as condition, there is craving. Dependent on the nose and odours, nose consciousness arises. With feeling as condition, there is craving. Dependent on the tongue and flavours, tongue consciousness arises. With feeling as condition, there is craving. Dependent on the body and tangibles, this is touch, actually, yeah. Body consciousness arises. With feeling as condition, there is craving. Dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. With feeling as condition, there is craving. So it was with reference to this that it was said the six classes of craving should be understood. This is the sixth set of six. I think people realise this part of, this is definitely part of dependent origination. And this is a very important part where 
this is what I often call like the reaction, reaction to the feelings that we're experiencing from our sense contacts. Um, because, as I said, we're going to have pleasant, unpleasant and um, neutral uh, experiences. And what, what craving points to, many people might think, well, craving just means, well, I want this really badly, you know, I've got to have this. But the craving actually also, it's like the craving to have, for sure, that's part of it. But it's also the craving to get rid of things as well. So what you've got is really this uh, pull and push, one might say. You know, obviously we want the things that are, um, uh, that are pleasant, we'll grab for those, we'll, we'll uh, try to um, get a hold of those. And the things that we find unpleasant, we'll push away. And this sort of like, this is a basis for liking and disliking. And it buys, we buy into, when we uh, have craving, we buy into suffering as it were because it's, this, the Buddha actually said in the Four Noble Truths, uh, which Laura was mentioned uh, a while back, was the second Noble Truth, of course, is the origin of uh, suffering. And I think everybody probably knows that's craving. Craving is what... Uh, causes suffering. I mean, many people might say, well, why does craving cause suffering? But if anybody uh, looks at craving, just for, just even in a very superficial way, you realise as soon as you have a craving, as soon as you have some want, the mind is immediately not at peace. It's not at home. It is uh, frustrated. It wants something that it does not have. Uh, and in the same way, uh, when you're craving to get rid of something, you're experiencing something you just don't want to know about. You've got some ache in the body, some pain in the body. You don't want it. You want to get rid of it. And, and this causes just ripples in the mind. It causes like uh, uh, spasms, you might say, in the mind, which mean that there cannot, there cannot be peace at that time anyway. And of course, um, the letting go of craving is the way to the ceasing of, of suffering. And you've all heard Ajahn Brahm talk many, many times on letting go or letting be. And of course that's what the Buddha is, uh, the wisdom of the Buddha is, you know, not, not to hold on to these things, not to push them away, to let them go. Let them go according to their nature and to realise that uh, we are not actually running the show. This is part of human experience. So does anybody like to uh, comment about craving? There's so much one could say about craving, I'm sure. <laughs> Right, uh, now we, um, we move on to, this is really quite an interesting cl- thing because, I mean, we all are aware we're experiencing, you know, through our bodies and mind, these six senses. And it's what we make out of that that's, that's really quite fascinating. Of course, the big thing we make out of that, besides, uh, well, I should say besides suffering, is this sense of self. And uh, this is the next thing the Buddha looks at, how we um, make a self out of this, this experience, how we experience the world. I should say too, I mean, you know, the, when we say why Buddhism looks at the self always and points to a non-self is, is that it is in a sense this sense of self that generates craving because we think we're, uh, you know, this person and, and this person's got to have this, got to get rid of that. You know, the sense of self, as it were, is where craving comes from as part of that ignorance of the way things are. So, righto. Deep stuff. (laughs) 
Demonstration of non-self. If anyone says the I is self, that is not tenable. The rise and fall of the I are discerned and since its rise and fall are discerned, it would follow. Myself rises and falls and that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say the I is self. Thus, the I is not self. If anyone should say forms are self, that is why, and I'll, this is the abbreviated uh, version of it. I won't go through all the, all the permutations. If anyone should say forms are self, that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say forms are self, because of the rise and fall. The, thus the I is not self, forms are not self. If anyone should say I consciousness is self, and because of rise and fall, that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say I consciousness is self. Thus I is not self, that's E-Y-E. <laughs> Forms are not self and I consciousness is not self. If anyone says I contact is self because of the rise and fall, that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say I contact is self. Thus the I is not self, forms are not self, I consciousness is not self, I contact is not self. If anyone says feeling is self because of rise and fall of feeling, uh, that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say feeling is self. Thus the I is not self, forms are not self, I consciousness is not self, I contact is not self, feeling is not self. If anyone says craving is self, that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say craving is self because of rise and fall. Thus the I is not self, forms are not self, I consciousness is not self, I contact is not self. Feeling is not self and craving is not self. And then the Buddha does, does the same analysis with the ear and uh, does the same analysis with the nose, uh, with the tongue and uh, with the mind as well. And what the Buddha is pointing to here, of course, is when he talks about rise and form, fall, with the eye, for instance, the sense organ, we can all experience, as it were, the fact that the eye definitely, you know, sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker. And if it were a self, the premise that this is all based on is if it were a self, the eye, which most people don't think of the eye as a self, I don't think, um, then it would be permanent, it would be lasting, it would be there all the time. But because the eye, uh, the physical organ of the eye and all the things that support it uh, are impermanent, they rise and fall, you can see that the eye, sometimes it's working well and as we get older, of course, you know, the eye may be not working at all well. So you can see rise and fall there. And often too, they point to the fact that uh, with moment-to-moment experience, things are arising and passing away uh, at an incredible rate. So like all the, the mind is doing this and the, the whole body is doing this. But most of us are not aware of that level of uh, experience, sort of very momentary experience. So uh, this is what the Buddha is pointing to, the fact that the eye is impermanent. Therefore, we can't say that it's a self. I mean, most people wouldn't say, well, I think I'm my eyes, but I think I would say pretty, like 99% people would say that they are their bodies even though intellectually they may say, well, no, no, we're not our bodies. We know that our bodies are going to die. At death they will die and um, decay and break down. But I think at a very emotive level, at a feeling level, 
There's a strong identification with our bodies and every part of our body. So, if one were to find, for instance, you were going blind, if you heard from the doctor tomorrow, you'll be blind by uh, Tuesday. You know, your sight's definitely going to go. I don't think there are very many people that I know that would take that with a lot of equanimity and say, well, you know, what do you expect? It's, you know, it's, it's a physical organ, it's, it's, it's arisen, it's going to pass away sometime. It's tomorrow, that's okay. Most people would be really in a, a, a real bother, they'd be in a real, a real turbulence if their eyes or their ears or their nose or their sense of touch were to break down. So Anjan Brahm always points out really that until something is actually threatened, you don't realise how much of a sense of self you have around it. So in other words, people can say, well, I'm not attached to this body. And then you get a major illness and it all falls apart. You start to feel, oh my goodness, you know, feel threatened, you know. And uh, So the identification is there, but it's all at, almost at a gut level, as it were. Intellectually, we can say, no, we're not the I, and so on. Uh, It's interesting too, the Buddha says forms uh, are are not self. I mean, many people would say too, you know, well, of course forms are not self, you know, they're out there. But it's amazing how attached we are to our external, uh, the external objects. For instance, I mean, uh, people are incredibly attached to sights, we all are. You know, we like to see nice things. So people travel to see sights, they watch videos, they watch particular movies. They like to see art, they like to see particular people and there's a real attachment to these external things because we really like them. We, we have developed this um, craving based on a really pleasant feeling that this is something we really, uh, we really uh, identify with. So it may sound a bit strange to say that we, um, you know, form is not self but it's actually quite, uh, when you look at the six senses, I mean you can also look at taste for instance the experience of taste. Our lives are built around food. I mean, the three meals a day that people have, it's not the end of it. We've got to do all the shopping and uh, I don't know about you, but people talk to me about food all the time and my mum tells me about what she ate last night and all this sort of thing. So our, you know, all our experience, and practically 90% of it, or a large percentage of it anyway, is based on our sense experience. So we have strong attachments to sights, um, tastes, Sounds, absolutely. I mean, how many people are music buffs and uh, you know, vast collections of CDs and uh, all sorts of books about music. Uh, we all very much like to hear pleasant, uh, pleasant conversation, pleasant things. So there's a real attachment to sound as well. It's interesting, when you talk about it as sound, it really... It really makes it, uh, it changes your perspective on it because, you know, the way you've, we've interpreted that sound is so usually pretty grand. I mean, we say, oh, this is Beethoven, you know, it's fantastic, it's Bach or it's whoever. And if you just say, well, this is sound, isn't it? It really makes it, cuts it right to the, the bone, to the bare bone. It's the truth. It is just sound, uh, no matter whether it's the most sublime, beautiful sound or a uh, very harsh sound. And, as I was pointing out at the beginning, whether that's a sublime sound or an absolutely uh, grating, annoying sound depends on you. And many of the sounds that people find sublime, other people find absolutely irritating, annoying and vice versa. Sounds that you might find harsh, uh, repugnant, people think, this is fantastic, this is really good. So, 
which immediately points to the fact that that world out there is not, as it were, the real world. <laughs> the real world is happening inside us. So, um, so that's forms. Uh, well, I was just trying to think. Uh, yeah. Body too, actually. Smells, yeah, we are attached to those very much, you know, perfumes and so on. That can be a strong thing. Um, taste, with um, uh, odours. Uh, the body is a really strong one for us too. If you look at our lives, our, uh, our lives are pretty much organised around uh, comfort of the body. We have houses for the body. We have clothes for the body. We feed the body. We go to the toilet for the body. Um, put the body to sleep. So our lives are very much uh, driven by this. It's more like an attachment to comfort and uh, an aversion to discomfort. And uh, eye consciousness, eye contact. Feeling is an interesting one because many people take feeling as self uh, very much, you know, and because feeling has, uh, uh, you can sort of identify, it has sort of a, uh, a very gut level um, uh, aspect to it that we, we really attach to feeling, particularly pleasant feeling, not many people attach to unpleasant feeling. Um, so feeling can often can really be often interpreted as self and definitely this is where uh, self really arises is craving because who is doing the craving? I mean you ask somebody, you know, uh, you, know you want this, well who, who wants this? And they'll always say well, it's me, I, I want it, you know. So this is in a very strong sense where a sense of self is really uh, solidified when you get craving because you feel this is me wanting this and uh, a whole lot of expectation can come up and actually a lot of sense pleasure is really, uh, it's quite interesting isn't it, that it's really about anticipating <laughs> how pleasant it's going to be and often when you have the actual uh, sense experience you get to it and think oh well it was good, yeah, it was alright but it's never, it might not be as good as you anticipated so uh, craving uh, is what we often identify with in a very real sense because craving is a doer. We can change the world with our craving. Well, that's what we, we feel we can do. We can make the world. So any comments about uh, demonstration of non-self? It's interesting in the Anatolak... Oh, sorry, John. Yep. Right, yes. That's a good point. John was saying it's quite easy to see that the body is non-self, but it's not so easy to see that the uh, mind is non-self because we can see that the body will eventually break down and uh, uh, the uh, end of all bodies uh, is in death and decay. It has to have to break down the physical organisms. But with the mind, it's not so easy to see. And the Buddha made that point, uh, very point actually, said that if one were to make... Uh, well, actually, he put it in a different way, actually, yeah. I was thinking of another sutta where he, he said that if, if one was to take the body as a self, that's actually more reasonable than to take the mind as a self because he said at least the body lasts for maybe 100 years. You could get 100 years out of it if you're lucky. Uh, but he said the mind arises as one thing in the morning and passes away as another thing in the evening. And actually, it passes, arises and passes away much quicker than that even. But I think we can all relate to that. You get up in the morning, the mind state you're in is, can be quite, quite different from the mind state 
uh, in the evening. You know, you can start out very, very uh, grotty and very uh, disgruntled or whatever, and by the end of the day, it's just passed completely, and you're in a, another space altogether, happy or whatever. But um, yes, yeah, it is harder to see that the mind is non-self because uh, that's more like almost like an internal internal experience. And because the mind uh, is so fast, to actually see that as non-self, see the processes in the mind, much, much more difficult. I think it's a very good point. Good point. Right. I am suffering, right. Lynn's just saying, that's a good point, that when we have physical suffering, uh, that really brings us back to the sense of self. You know, we really identify with the body. I am suffering, and that's very much like I was talking about when you're sick, you know, get a really major sickness or you know, blindness may be coming upon you, that you really, the sense of identification, my eye or my body, it comes up very, very strongly. I think that's a really good point. But I would also say that the sense of suffering in the mind is often worse than the body. <laughs> and, yeah. 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 It really, um, yeah, it really enforces that sense of uh, it's me. I've got to do something. It's actually more like a sense of resistance from the mind. I think, in a way, you know, the mind is really resisting this pain, and that, that's actually what makes pain uh, more unbearable. Is this sort of resistance to it, because um, most people know that if one can embrace uh, pain or open the door of one's heart to it, of course. I mean, it's extraordinary. Sometimes it just vanishes and you think, well, what was that about? You know, what was that about? It was there, it was so real and uh, yet, you know, I've just let go, as it were, and now it's, it's not there. It's vanished utterly. So, but it's a good point. I think that's yeah. Um, somebody's just asking how does how do the six sense bases relate to cultural expression, as it were, you know, where we have uh, different uh, styles of art, say in Thailand, Burma, uh, and a different music, poetry, and so on. But I think it all ties in with the six sense bases in the sense that what is taken to be, in a collective sense, to be pleasant feeling. In other words, you know, like they have say uh, with art you have a visual contact and then a pleasant feeling arises and then craving arises uh, that wants to hold on to this 
And there is, there is also a collective sense of this is a very pleasant thing. And anything that's seen as pleasant will become, as it were, something that the people want to reproduce, generate in some form or other. So you build up a culture of what is regarded to be as pleasant, uh, pleasant, uh, pleasant feelings, pleasant contacts. It doesn't sound very grand, but, uh, but that's really what is happening. And this is the whole process of advertising too, is exactly the same. You generate uh, sense contacts that will, will uh, give rise to pleasant feeling. And once people have pleasant feeling, then they are going to crave for that. They'll probably want it. If you want, if you, if you want to do the opposite, if you want to put people off, and you know you see this in politics a lot, you can give very unpleasant sense contacts about, say, a group of people. You can uh, display them as being very undesirable. It will give rise to a very unpleasant feeling in in people, most people. And from that there will be a craving to get rid of these people, to, uh, to reject them. So that whole process which builds up culture is also what builds up uh, advertising, which manipulates us. And uh, by understanding this process, you get a bit of an insight into what's going on. And I mean, obviously the advertising agencies don't read, probably don't read <laughs> Buddha's teachings, but they have, at a, uh, a very real level, they've, they've tapped into what the Buddha is talking about. I mean, the Buddha is actually trying to describe our experience. Uh, it's what they're, uh, they're actually doing, is manipulating our six sense contacts. So, that's right, oh, we better move on, because it's getting along, actually. See, might have to abbreviate. Now we've got the, uh, that was called the demonstration on self. Now we've got the origin of person- origination of personality. Right. Now, because this is the way leading to the origination of personality, one regards the I thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. One regards forms thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. One regards I consciousness thus, one regards I contact thus, one regards feeling thus, one regards craving thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. And it's the same for all the other uh, sense organs and uh, sense objects and sense contact, sense consciousness um, and feeling and craving. Probably, did, did this ring any bells for people when Buddha talks about the origination of personality? Because it, it sounds like, when you, when you hear that, it immediately reminds me of um, origination of suffering. And uh, this, is, this is very much what the Buddha is, is talking about uh, in terms of personality, you know, the arising of suffering. He often talked about the, the five khandhas, the five, aggregate, five aggregates of uh, clinging as being um, the noble truth of suffering. So really, the Buddha here is talking here about uh, the origin of suffering too. And the origin of suffering is obviously this, um, this sense of self which, which uh, wants to grasp things. This is mine is often interpreted as craving. This I, this I am is uh, conceit of who I am. And this is myself as a view. And in Buddhism we often talk about these three types of... I think they call it, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it in the back... Um, Three types of uh, grasping, obsessions, he calls them. He says here about it, the commentary explains this passage uh, is stated to show two noble truths, suffering and its origin. 
I would say actually the Buddha, when he's talking about that the various aspects of sense experience should be understood, even there he's talking about suffering. Uh, because when you understand, then you see them as impermanent. You see that they are suffering or unsatisfactory, and you see them as being a process, not self. So, uh, so he says that this passage, which, just, which I've just read, is showing suffering in its origin by way of the three obsessions, gaha. The truth of suffering is shown by the term personality, elsewhere explicated as the five aggregates affected by clinging. The three obsessions are craving, conceit and views which respectively give rise to the notion of mine, I am and myself. These two truths constitute together the round of existence. So in other words, this is how uh, existence sustains itself, how samsara runs. This is actually Paticca Samapada. This is what's fueling um, uh, rebirth, all the... Uh, all these cravings, because the Buddha talked about three cravings, didn't he, that give rise to rebirth. One of them is uh, sensual desire. Um, So any of the sense experiences through the five senses and even through the mind sense, I guess, particularly the five senses, and also the craving just to be, to exist. And the third one he talked about was the craving to annihilate um, our experience of existence which you see a lot of these days because people have got a lot of negativity towards the world and the way it is. There's a lot of annihilationism, as it were, around. Um, And we've talked a little bit about the fact that people can, through identification, uh, can take the eye, the body as it were, the eye and the um, eye forms, uh, consciousness, contact, uh, feeling and craving as being self, and particularly craving as being self. So here the Buddha is saying this is where, where it all arises, where suffering arises, where it all originates from. If we didn't have sense contacts, then craving couldn't arise. <laughs> but because there are these experiences, we are experiencing through our external senses and our mind sense, those craving are going to arise. We're going to either want it or we want to get rid of it very much. So, Any comments on the origination of personality? Also, one thing I'd say too, you probably recognise personality too as being a term that uh, is mentioned in, as something that is abandoned. The personality fetter is abandoned at the first stage of enlightenment. And so this is also tying into that that uh, the sense that uh, when one attains the first stage of enlightenment, there is no longer that sense of of I, of self. The self view is dropped. So the Buddha is actually sort of also, uh, as it were, referring to that. Right. And now uh, he gives the other half of the equation, which is uh, which is just as well for all of us: <laughs> the cessation of personality. Now, bhikkhus, this is the way leading to the cessation of personality. One regards the I thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. One regards forms in just the same way. One regards I consciousness in just the same way. One regards I contact in just the same way. One regards feeling in this way. One regards craving thus. This is not mine. This, is not, this I am not. This is not myself. And it's the same for all the other senses as well. 
So the Buddha is pointing to the way out of uh, uh, out of suffering, out of samsara, as being really seeing uh, seeing non-self, as it were, seeing that these things. Um, Destroying ignorance, as it were, because what keeps us going in samsara, what keeps us craving is a sense of not knowing the Four Noble Truths for sure, but also the, uh, the sense of self. Because we think of a sense of self, because we have a, a sense of self, we're going to crave. And because we're going to crave, we're going to create this disturbance in the mind for what we haven't got and for what we want to get rid of. So in a way, what the, uh, uh, the Buddha is pointing to is the ending of ignorance through realising that these things are not, are not us, they're not, they're not a self, they're not mine, uh, they're not what I am and they're not myself. So, any questions about that? Yes, yes, Laura. Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, maybe we can come to that. I hope I, <laughs> I can come up with one. <laughs> That's good. Now this is actually, we're getting to a really important part here now because this is where, this is actually uh, what I was talking about, a reaction, as it were, to feeling. And this is, this is really where we can, uh, we can make a difference uh, to our experiences, so our experience of the world. Because dependent on the, uh, this is called the underlying tendencies uh, on, on page 1134, Bhikkhus, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there arises a feeling felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. When one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one delights in it, welcomes it, and remains holding to it, then the underlying tendency to lust lies within one. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one sorrows, grieves and laments, weeps beating one's breast and becomes distraught then the underlying tendency to aversion lies within one when one is touched by neither by a neither painful nor pleasant feeling if one does not understand as it actually is the origination the disappearance the gratification the danger and the escape in regard to that feeling the neither pleasant nor uh, neither painful nor pleasant feeling then the underlying tendency to ignorance lies within one because that one shall here and now make an end of suffering without abandoning the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings, without abolishing the underlying feeling to aversion towards painful feeling, without extirpating extirpating the underlying uh, tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling, without abandoning the ignorance and arousing true knowledge. This is impossible. And the Buddha actually does the same for the other senses. So this is actually where it becomes uh, much more practical because we're, we're looking at our reactions to our sense contacts. Um, and obviously, with the, as I said before, the pleasant feeling we're going to chase after and uh, the unpleasant feeling we're going to try and get rid of. But one of the really um, interesting things that um, Adam Brahm talked about in a talk a few years ago now actually was we often, the, the, this is where it becomes very practical I think, we often take the uh, sense object, 
the thing that's actually giving us, giving rise to the contact, to the feeling that we're experiencing. We often take that as being responsible for the feeling. So in other words, we see somebody and we think, that person, you know, they're so terrible, they get a bad feeling. And then from that bad feeling we generate that it's this person, you know, that's really the cause of the, the bad feeling. But in actual fact, that bad feeling, that unpleasant feeling, which is in the mind. So what we're actually, uh, as it were, hating, what we're actually averse to at that time is actually the contents of our mind. Obviously, that person, whether we hate them or we love them, they don't actually embody a pleasant feeling. They don't actually embody an unpleasant feeling. If that were the case, everybody would react to the same sense contacts, same sense objects exactly the same way. But obviously uh, one person can be seen as being a, a great friend, a uh, very desirable, wonderful person and the same person can be seen by another person as being absolutely dreadful, real terror, tyrant or whatever. So this is where it's becoming quite interesting that you realise that the practice, the experience is really the internal uh, aspect of it. The external world as it, as it is is not really responsible. And one of my teachers actually, she used to say, Ayakima used to say, and uh, this is to me, this was a really important teaching, was don't blame the trigger. So in other words, if somebody says something that's absolutely dreadful to you, don't blame them. That's their conditioning that they said it to begin with. They're bad karma too. Uh, but what we're actually reacting to is the feeling that has been generated inside, this unpleasant feeling and uh, we want to get rid of it and basically we become very averse to it. But if we see that process, then we can stop, as it were, blaming the world. You see so many people blaming the government, blaming this, that and the other, you know, any other group, lots of different groups and things in the world, different types of music they don't like or whatever. And really it's nothing to do with what's going on out there, it's inside here. It's the way we're reacting to pleasant feeling if we, uh, we really like something and we really want to grab onto it and hold it, or we're relating to unpleasant feeling, we really want to get rid of it, absolutely want to uh, destroy it maybe. So I think this is where we're really getting more like the, the practical implications of what the Sixth Sense bases are, are, are about. And because it's an internal response, we can do a lot about that. Just being mindful of what's going on in that process can give us a bit more of a choice a bit more of a gap between reaction. Because when you look at a process, it can run automatically, and for most of us it does run automatically. Um, but if you're aware of the process, then you can put some stops in. You can, uh, you can be aware of how you're going to, the automatic reaction that's going to come up, and you've got a bit of a choice. Obviously, it's not the stage of destroying craving. Um, I know some teachers say that this, this gap between feeling and craving is where you can put an end to craving, as it were. By being mindful, you can, as it were, avoid craving, uh, which is the end of suffering. You can certainly reduce suffering, but I would say, and Ajahn Brahm definitely says, unless you destroy ignorance, there's no way you can destroy craving because that's where it's all coming from. Because <laughs> we've got this, uh, you know, we have got ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, the way things really are, and we have ignorance of uh, impermanence and not-self as well. So if we've still got those ignorances, it doesn't matter how mindful we are, we will not destroy craving, it'll still be there. But 
with mindfulness, with samadhi, concentration, we can actually make a difference and we can modify our craving to have things or to get rid of things. Be more skillful, actually, which is good. The interesting uh, part of this, uh, uh, you probably twigged to it too, is where the Buddha talks about the um, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And uh, he talks about uh, understanding the origination, disappearance, gratification, danger and escape. The origination, of course, of any, uh, any feeling is going to be contact. If you don't have a contact, there won't be any feeling. The um, disappearance, of course, is a disappearance of that contact. So in other words, the Buddha is pointing to the fact that our experience is like a uh, causally conditioned process. If the condition is there, we will experience the feeling. If it's not there, we won't. The gratification, I think the gratification in uh, neither painful nor pleasant feeling is, is that it isn't, um, it isn't unpleasant. And in many ways, it's quite an interesting thing, in many ways uh, a lot of the aspects of meditation are based on uh, things that we use, for instance, objects, like the breath is really in neither painful nor pleasant uh, object, as it were. So the sort of neutral objects are where we can actually do a quite a bit of practice because it's very hard if you like something, you're really tugged towards it, you have this sense of attraction, craving. On the other hand, if you don't like something, you want to push it away. So a neutral object allows the mind a place where it can come to some sort of equanimity and get some sort of perspective. So it's a quite important place. But he says that's the gratification. I see that as the gratification anyway. The danger, of course, he always points out with anything, any sense experience, is the fact that it's impermanent, that it arises and passes away, which uh, is a good thing in many ways too because if our sense experience has lasted for any length of time, our sense contacts, we would be in a mess, we'd be absolutely distraught because you can't eat, for instance, for hours and hours. I mean, after about 15 minutes, it would be torture. <laughs> and the same with sound and uh, all the others. Ajahn Brown points out an interesting thing, though, that is quite true, that with our sense contacts, if it's continuous, you'll notice it yourself, like a sound is continuous, often you'll just tune out. It'll go, it'll disappear anyway. It's sort of like uh, the sense organs, they actually only they relate to change. They, that's the way they function. They can only, as it were, pick up changes and they can't stay with something that's continuous very easily. So that's the danger that's impermanent. The escape is, uh, usually it's not delighting or, uh, what do you say, delighting? Yeah, delighting in it um, to, to be equanimous towards it, to allow it to be, let it be, as it were. That's the escape from it. And and it's interesting the Buddha says here that somebody that hasn't abandoned the, uh, as it were, the attachment to pleasant, pleasant feelings, pleasant sense contacts, hasn't abandoned the aversion to unpleasant sense contacts and feelings uh, and hasn't um, abandoned uh, or hasn't understood uh, the neither painful nor pleasant uh, feelings Will not, will not be liberated, cannot be liberated. Because they're still attached to the world. They're still tied in. Because there's all that craving is still there. There's all that aversion that's still there. So that sort of mind, if it passes away, it's going to arise again and want to crave and be averse to very similar things. <laughs> uh, 
And the ignorance that he talks about in regard to the neither painful uh, nor pleasant feeling is just not understanding that, uh, that it's impermanent, that there is a gratification in it, there's also a danger in it and there is an escape. So that's, that's what he's talking about there. But when he say, talks about with the abandoning of ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he's actually pointing towards fundamental ignorance, ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, the way existence is, uh, and also like ignorance of the uh, idea of a self, the clinging to an idea of a self. And that sequence actually of the uh, origination, disappearance, gratification, the danger and the escape was one of the things that inspired my, uh, my name because my name actually, Nisarano, means uh, escape. And it comes from this sequence because I really like the fact that the Buddha could actually be very, um, you know, he had a very balanced view of it. He didn't say, this is all terrible stuff. He was saying that, yes, they rise, they pass away, but he's saying that there is gratification, there is something in there, there is some happiness. And then he's pointing out the danger, there is a downside too. And then he's pointing out the way out of that danger, out of the, the bind one feels in. So, righto. It's now at 20 past, so I'll just try and... We're pretty close to the end now, so I'll just... Now the abandonment of the underlying tendencies... Um, this is very similar to the last passage, but in the negative. So, Because dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there arises a feeling felt as a pleasant or painful or neither ple- painful nor pleasant. When one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one does not delight in it, welcome it and remain holding to it, then the underlying ten- tendency to lust does not lie within one. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one does not sorrow, grieve and lament, does not weep beating one's breast and become distraught, then the underlying tendency to aversion does not lie within one. When one is touched by a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, if one understands as it actually is, it actually is the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger and the escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying tendency to ignorance does not lie within one. Because that one shall here and now make an end of suffering by abandoning the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling, by abolishing the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling, by extirpating, it means digging up by the way, (laughs) Uh, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling, by... by abandoning and then by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge. This is possible. And then he talks about it in relation to the other uh, senses and the mind. So it's very much, um, as it were, uh, abandoning lust. For many people, they don't relate to the word lust very well because they think, well, I'm not lusting. But lust is really any form of, uh, like, attraction, desire, I guess you'd say, whether it's very strong or, you know, just very mild. Lust is sort of like a bit of an old-fashioned word, actually. So it's, uh, but it's any movement of the mind towards an attractive, attractive thing, wanting it. Um, and any movement of the mind to get rid of something is an averse feeling. Um, righto. I'll just do the last section and then maybe ask some questions. Uh, open up for questions. And the last passage, which is the most important, is liberation. So this is where we're all aiming for. 
Seeing thus bhikkhus, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with eye consciousness, disenchanted with eye contact, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with craving. And he does the same, uh, a, noble, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with all the other eye senses and the mind sense too. He becomes disenchanted with the mind, disenchanted with mind objects, disenchanted with mind consciousness, disenchanted with mind contact, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with craving. Being disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands. Birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now while this discourse was being spoken, through not clinging, the minds of 60 bhikkhus were liberated from the taints. So they became fully enlightened from listening to this discourse. I hope there's been some, <laughs> some progress towards it anyway. But I'll read, I'll read the note that goes with that last one too because that's really, really tremendous actually. I think it's a bit amazing what the commentary said. He said, there is nothing wonderful in the fact that 60 bhikkhus attained arahantship when the Buddha first taught this sutta. Well, I think that's pretty marvellous. <laughs> uh, but it goes on to say, but each time Sariputta, Moggallana and the 80 great disciples taught it, 60 bhikkhus attained arahantship. So that's 80 times 60 again. In Sri Lanka, the elder Malya Adeva uh, taught this sutta in 60 places and each time 60 bhikkhus attained arahantship. But when the elder Tipitaka Chulanaga taught this sutta, this is presumably in Sri Lanka too, to a vast assembly of humans and gods, at the end of the discourse a thousand bhikkhus attained arahantship and among the gods only one remained a worldling. Must have felt like the odd one out there. So, that, I mean, this sutta is such a bare-bone sutta and it hasn't got, as it were, those lovely similes. I was going to read you a, quite a powerful simile that the Buddha used for sense contact. It's pretty strong, but uh, I think we haven't got time for that. But I'll just comment a little bit on this. When the Buddha is talking about one becomes disenchanted, it's, uh, in Pali it's the word nibbida, and you probably anyone that knows Ajahn Brahm's teaching knows that he makes a great deal of this word. I can remember in 1994 when I first came to the monastery, it was the word of the year. And he uses the translation revulsion. So he sees it as a much, much stronger uh, insight, as it were. But it just, it's an insight that comes from the understanding that these things are impermanent, that they can't really satisfy and they're not self. But it's seeing it at a really deep level that what's the point? Disenchantment's not such a bad term. I prefer turning away as a translation because you see, it's no point buying into it. You know, it's it's uh, it's actually instead of being uh, as people mostly see their sense contacts as being something that uh, is permanent, as happiness, maybe as beautiful too, and as self, it's turning away completely from that and knowing that with insight. There's no way. It's just like a child. I mean, if you if a child sees a flame on a stove and puts its hand on of course it's going to go, oh, take it off. And from there on it has the understanding, this is hot, this burns. 
So they won't get involved. And someone that has that insight at that very deep level of what our experience of uh, the world is, these six senses, they're not going to get involved. They uh, will feel like it's fire. In fact, there was another very famous uh, discourse by the Buddha called the Fire Sermon, which he taught to 1,000 uh, fire-worshipping ascetics, matted hair ascetics. And he used that very thing. He said, we're burnt by our sense contacts. Burnt in the sense that because of these pleasant, unpleasant and neither pleasant or unpleasant feelings, we develop a craving for something and we're burnt by liking, loving, uh, wanting, becoming addicted or we're burnt by aversion, hatred, uh, negativity, annoyance, all the, all the subtler levels of experience of those, those two. So that's what the Buddha was talking about when he said it was burning. Uh, so someone that sees that uh, the six senses are burning is not going to want to get involved. They're going to become disenchanted or revulsed, probably, or turn away. And then he mentions that uh, someone who uh, becomes disenchanted to the sense contacts then becomes dispassionate. Uh, Ajahn Brahm likes the, the, uh, the translation, it's quite nice, the fading away fading away of interest in the senses, in the sensual contact, sensory contact. In a similar way, it's, it's sort of like a deeper stage of disenchantment or turning away is having seen that, one's not going to have become involved in them. One's going to become distanced uh, and regard them, uh, regard them from a greater distance once, once seen them in depth. And then from that the mind is, is liberated because the reason why the mind is not liberated, why it's reborn, of course, is because we want, we crave to have sense contacts that we see as pleasant in this life and we crave just to exist or alternatively we crave to uh, annihilate the sense of self. So leave you with that and um, I hope this is along the path to enlightenment and uh, understanding and also reducing our suffering too, it's great so um, I don't know if people would like to ask any brief questions it's now 4.30 so it's 15 minutes over alright I think we can end there it's quite a long class and I hope you've got something out of this afternoon's class I pay uh, respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha Buddha. Thank the Buddha for uh, such a great discourse. Thank you.